Hello, my name is Dr. Kim Farina. I'm a veterinarian and host of Pause and Reflect with Zoetis, provided to you by Zoetis. Welcome to season eight. We will continue to cover a variety of topics that will help you succeed in veterinary medicine. We'll also keep the focus on corporate veterinary practice. So for veterinarians who work in these spaces, this will be super helpful. Season eight has four episodes covering different types of veterinary care models. We're exploring everything from value-based care to whole health care. Now, what are we talking about? Well, I can tell you right now, it's important. So you're gonna wanna listen in. As pet ownership continues to grow and professional well-being remains top of mind, different veterinary models are essential to wrap your head around to help animals that need our care. Our guest is Dr. Jennifer Welser, Chief Medical and Quality Officer for Mars Veterinary Health and a boarded veterinary ophthalmologist. Welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> so tell us a little bit about your background and your current role. Yeah, thanks. So as you mentioned, I am a veterinary ophthalmologist by training, and I was in practice for many years in sort of different settings, um, you know, independently consulting, part of large multi-specialty, standalone ophthalmology, um, nonprofit. So lots of different environments in, as a practitioner. And then I ended up joining what would become Blue Pearl Veterinary Partners and was with them in practice in New York City for about eight or nine years, um, helped lead that practice as well and start an internship program. And then I became the chief medical officer for Blue Pearl Veterinary Partners. And then we were acquired by Mars. And, and a few years later, that parlayed into me taking the role at Mars Veterinary Health, where I'm now the chief medical and quality officer, focused a bit more on internal affairs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so impressive. It's amazing. So let's get started. All right. During a recent veterinary innovation summit, you presented the concept of value-based veterinary care. So what is it? Yeah, it, you know, it, it needs a good elevator pitch, doesn't it? So I think anyone who's been looking at human health care has, has he certainly heard about it. And it's not new. It's been, you know, trying to get traction in human health care for a very long time. Um, it's, it's a little bit more complicated in human health care with the payer provider model. And, and what does this mean in terms of, of you know, how, how people are, are incentivized to provide good care, how health care users are incentivized to take care of themselves and be participants. But I think an easy way to talk about value-based care is that there has to be sort of this shared journey that everybody's on, that outcomes matter and the outcomes that matter most to the patient really matter. And I think that's kind of the, the nutshell at the core of what value-based care is. Yeah, I, I actually want to talk about outcomes because as veterinarians, we all strive to have positive patient outcomes, but it's more complicated than just survival because what's equally important is for patients to have a good quality of life. So I guess the question is, how can veterinary teams improve their partnership with pet owners when it comes to sorting out what a patient needs versus what the owner wants for the pet? You get what I'm saying? Yeah, no, I do. And, and you, I think you can even layer in more than what does the patient need, you know, it, because it's it's sort of what's what's the environment that, that we're talking about? What are the resources? And those resources aren't just financial. Financial clearly matters a lot in our industry, but it's not just financial resources. It's sort of philosophical what's what's the the you know physical abilities and just taking everything into consideration with a, a illness or disease condition or just general care of a pet and so you know we're all trained as veterinarians to get really good histories and help figure out what the problem is but I do think we have to tweak the questions and spend a little bit more time on without you know 
I guess, crossing lines and prying into people's personal lives too much, but you have to sort of understand what, what, what are we talking about here? What, what's the, what, what are your expectations? What's important to you with, with your pet? And how do we make sure that it's not just, aha, here's the disease, here's how we treat it, and here's what you need to do, and let's just like check mark, we, we did a good job. I think it's a little more complex and takes a little, more, a little bit more um, clever questioning and clever relationship building, I think. But when you say clever questioning and tweaking the questions, like, like, can you give an example? Yeah, I, you know, we might make an assumption with a diagnosis that there is what we used to kind of refer to as the gold standard of treatment, but, but everything is subjective. I, I mean, it, it truly, there, it, there's, there are some black and whites and I know everybody wants healthcare to be much more black and white, but there's still so much subjectivity to, you know, what, what's the, what's the best outcome. If you said, I want, uh, we'll talk about other examples maybe later, but for, for let's use knee surgery or a, a cranial cruciate ligament a problem as an example. If you are someone that says, okay, my dog, you know, has his limping cranial cruciate ligament problem. The most important thing to me is that my dog isn't in pain. I'm not a jogger. I'm not going to go five mile run. And then, and so then let's talk about the choices in, in front of you. If you say, I run every day with my dog. It's really important to me that we, that we get this dog back to full functioning. Well, then that's going to be some different choices and some, and some different commitments, frankly, and that you have to sort of pick through and get to that level of not just here's what a cranial cruciate ligament problem is. Here's how you treat it. It, it needs to be inclusive of, of, you know, what's important and what's your lifestyle like and what, when, and, you know, can you, can you go to physical therapy several times a week for several weeks? If you really want your dog to be full, full, full functioning, you know, it's, it just takes a little bit more shared decision-making. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. And, and, you know, we're talking about pet owners and the client experience is very important. Mm -hmm. So when it comes to decision-making, just as we're, we're talking about it right now, what does owner involvement and shared risk look like then? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. You know, I think about in human healthcare now there are um, various different titles, but sort of care coordinators, care providers, people that may not have you know extensive medical training, but they're involved in the success of humans reaching their you know healthiest state. Take diabetes for example, right? You might have someone who calls and checks in on someone and says, "Hey, how you doing? Are you taking your are you taking your your insulin as needed? Are you watching your diet? Are you trying to get exercise?" And really kind of saying. You, you have to be involved in this if you if you're gonna if you, this is gonna go well and people love their pets I mean clearly you know that's not that's not a question but it can be very easy to sort of sort of have it be I want it the client wants it to be black and white they want to know what it's going to cost to fix it and then they want it fixed instead of like well most healthcare is a journey and and that client engagement and being involved really helps people feel, first of all, heard and seen by the veterinary teams. If sometimes, you know, it can be intimidating and they don't understand what's, what's happening. And it helps the veterinary teams really hear and see the client in front of them. And then everybody feels like we are in this together for the, for the, the best outcome we can get for this, for this pet. And it just takes that relationship building that like, it's not, it's not a, it's a, not a one-way service being provided here really. Yeah, I, I love that you say it's not a one-way service. It really is this partnership and this relationship. Yeah. So yeah, you hit it you hit it on the head. Um, up next, I'd actually like to talk about short-term and long-term benefits of value-based care. But first, a break. And what I'm holding in my hand, you'll find out, is on Pause and Reflect with Zoetis, we like to test our guests' knowledge on a topic that has nothing to do with veterinary medicine. So um, today's quiz is called Not My Career, 
And today, your career for just a moment is a geographer or cartographer, so someone who is an expert in maps. Um, and these questions have have to do with the 50 states of the United States of America. It's a speed quiz. <laughs> so I want to see how many questions you can get right in one minute. We're, we'll set a timer. Now, oh, no. you look you look a little not stressed. You, you look a little excited. It, it doesn't. It really doesn't matter because I don't have any prizes. So you win, you lose. <laughs> it doesn't matter. I have this bell for some positive reinforcement. Oh, good. And we'll okay. see how it goes. It, it makes me think of Trivial Pursuit, like the family and like, like the geography questions would come up. I'm like, oh, yo, no, that's not me. Like, uh, like, oh. give, give, give me something else. But let's see. Well, it is you right now. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Okay. okay. Number one, which one of these states border Canada? Idaho, Oregon, or Rhode Island? Idaho. Very good. There are 13 of them. Which one of these states does not border an ocean? Maryland, Tennessee, or Washington? Tennessee. Excellent. How's the if you are an expert in maps, you should know how to spell, right? How do you spell Mississippi? M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. Love it. Very good. Where is the Hoover Dam? Now, hint, it's on the border of two states. Um, so is it between, I'm going to say like in the whole Colorado, Arizona, New Mexico, Nevada. <laughs> okay. Pick two. Uh, Nevada and Arizona, Colorado. Very, yes. Oh, yeah. Very good. <laughs> okay. Very good. Put these states in order from North to South, Iowa, Alabama, Wyoming. Wyoming, Iowa, Alabama. Nicely done. Oh, we're out of, <laughs> out of time. I had a few more. <laughs> Nicely done. Nicely. Very good. That was actually very fun to be like, wait a minute. <laughs> Thanks for the positive reinforcement. Oh, you did very well. Very well. All right. So let's talk about the short-term and long-term benefits of value-based care. What are they? Yep. I, th I think some, some of the short-term and very obvious things that we need, we need more transparency in what we're doing. We, we, we have to sort of say that like, we're not, we're not afraid to talk about, you know, what, what the outcomes are. We're not afraid to measure ourselves against others and, and to sort of say we are in this for continuous improvement, continuous learning and the best that we can possibly be. So transparency, this brings transparency to what you are doing. Are you getting the outcomes that you thought, or are you actually really even thinking about the outcome measurement in, in the way that you should be. Um, there's a lot of engagement. You know, the teams are, are, everybody knows right now, our clinical teams and our hospitals, they are so stressed and so strained. And, and I think they're, they're, they need a bit of a, of a sort of a lifeline toward, there must be a better way to do this. There has to be something that I can engage around and feel really good about the care that I'm providing really good that my relationship with the clients is, is what it's supposed to be. And that, and that the services we're providing are, are useful and important. So I think that's a, a, a big, you know, cry for it right now. As we get further, the longer term pieces would be, you know, we have to kind of remove waste in the system. And I think sometimes people get a little, when you think, they think, hear things like, you know, efficiency and removing waste, I think sometimes veterinarians especially might think you're going to make me see more cases. That's what it's about. And it's, and it's not, it's about, you know, you, you, a person who sits in front of you should be in front of you for the right reasons. And then any dollar spent, any time spent should be as, a, as, as useful as possible and as effective as possible. You know, you don't want people to spend all their money to try to figure out what, what they can do. I think telehealth, teletriage will help, you know, as well. Like let's get people in the right spot so that 
everyone's time, everyone's money, you know, everyone's heart, soul, and energy is, is treated as, as the most precious and we can't waste those resources. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to go back to what you were talking about with the veterinary teams. So given that veterinary teams are feeling stressed and well-being may be suffering. So how can this value-based care approach really help the profession? You, you started to talk about it, but I'd like to dive into it a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah. I think it, there's, when you talk about an outcome, that it, it really, it's not just a person shows up in a veterinary office, here's the complaint, here's the diagnosis, here's the treatment, it gets better. It's holistic health. It's everybody involved, whether or not you're a general practitioner, emergency, specialty, that, that every, everybody's involved. And so it's a team sport. And, and so you can't, you can't sort of carve out the individuals on it. A key part of value-based care, the, the way we're sort of trying to focus on it to kind of you know, eat this elephant one bite at a time, if you will, is the use of survey tools. So the, the clinical teams and the, and the clients literally respond to surveys. How's it going? What do you think? Is this what you expected? You know, where was this harder? Where was this better? Clinical teams might have kind of standard pieces and saying, okay, yep, no, no infections, no unexpected, no unexpected changes, but we can marry the two. Was there a gap between how the clinical team thought something went and how the client really felt like it went and what their expectations were and start to sort of engage the teens to say, it will be better if we're communicating better and and we set expectations up appropriately. There'll be less complaints. There'll be there'll be much more you know again engagement and involvement and and less sort of of the unexpected and that helps for people in their engagement level and how they feel about what they're doing. Yeah, but let's get let's get practical for a moment. Yeah. Like, so how would you test this concept of value based care? And then I'm going to ask you for an example. But but let's talk yeah. about how you would test it first. Yep. So testing it, you know, we we have again looking at human healthcare and trying to pick some of the models that we can try to best translate in. There's no question; it's a massive concept, and the successes happen by starting small. And by starting small, you pick a disease condition, and you and you say, okay, we're going to look at this disease condition and figure out. Uh, are there a bunch of different treatment pathways? Or how many of those treatment pathways lead to really good results? How many of those treatment pathways might lead to a good result, but very different kinds of results, depending on on what the what was what the outcome desired outcome was, and how many treatment pathways might end up at a good result, but were extremely different on how you got there. And so it really has to start as as a condition and look at the data on you know what what were the diagnostics done, what were the therapeutics done, you know what were the number of appointments, you know back and forth, et cetera. Yeah. Okay. So I, I'm totally following you. And so let's drill down even more. So do you have an example yep. of a medical or surgical condition, just as you're saying, where there might be many treatment options with similar outcomes? So can yep. we get real specific for a minute? Yeah, no, we can. We So when we first started this, we, we, we kind of foolishly, I guess, retrospectively, we, we learned a lot, but we started with diabetes and that's just too big. It, it's just way too big. And, and certainly there are lots of different choices that go with it. And so then our first two pilots um, I mentioned cranial cruciate ligament, and and then we've also looked at feline hyperthyroidism. The reason we're looking at those conditions it would be it's a pretty it's a pretty definitive diagnosis. You you your cat has or does not have feline hyperthyroidism. Your dog did or did not you know rupture its cranial cruciate ligament. I know there's some nuances in meniscal et cetera, but let's just say it's definitive. And then there are definitive choices. If you're a cat with feline hyperthyroidism, you can do there's there's a diet control. There's medication, both oral and ear gel, and then there's there's I-131 therapy. 
you might get the same outcome that you have controlled hyperthyroidism and, and that your cat is doing well. There might be degrees of how you got to that outcome, but the, the pathways and what that looks like, it's pretty different for, for, you know, does someone say, no problem, I want to put medication into my cat's mouth or ear for, you know, in perpetuity and have testing along the way to make sure it's going okay versus I'm going to have a large upfront expense. I'm going to do I-131 therapy. My cat's going to be, you know, hospitalized for whatever length of time. So they're very, very different in how you get to the still the desired outcome of controlled hyperthyroidism. And so they're really good ones for us to talk about expectations from clients, how those decisions were made, their understanding of the different choices, what the clinical teams, how they sort of, you know, sell, if you will, one, one approach versus another based on their own comfort level and experience. So that's, that's kind of how we're starting, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And now I want to actually zoom out because you know, and I know the veterinary mindset can be very difficult to change. We tend to present treatment recommendations, just as we were talking about earlier, based upon gold standards, the latest technology. But if we say this value-based care model makes sense, which I think it totally does, what advice would you give to veterinarians who want to implement it? And you were talking a little bit about it with like the selling, you know, from the, from the veterinary team, but how, how do they implement it? Yeah. The, um, if I start one step before the implementation piece, when we looked at the pilots, there's no way I'm going to walk into hospitals and say, Hey, you're going to be participating in a pilot. We're going to look at everything you do. And we're going to tell you how your outcomes compare to other people. I mean, that would be like dead in the water. So it's really, Hey, we're going to run this pilot. We're trying to better understand outcomes from a few different angles. Do you want to participate? If you participate, we'll be looking at all of your choices, all your communications, all of your, all of your diagnostics and your record keeping. And we are going to try to better understand and, and if you will, significantly from the client perspective, because it is about outcomes that matter most to them in many ways, how, how, how's that going? And, you know, if we, we're not necessarily going to rank like one to 10 who had the best outcomes, but there will be some areas where then the veterinary team says, well, okay, now I want to implement like the most successful approach that I possibly can. So what is it that, you know, somebody else was doing where they had better outcomes or the clients felt more engaged and more involved in it? And so the implementation, because as you mentioned, veterinarians, we can be very set in our ways and very, and very, and frankly, very confident for lots of good reasons that, you know, but Hey, I've, I've built up my knowledge base over the years. This is the way this works. I, I mean, like, I, I know that this is better to sort of say, well, I, I have, have been on my own journey on what gets better. And it, and I, and I really, what I really, really care about in my heart and soul is providing the best care that I possibly can for these pets with the best outcomes and the happiest client engagement. So I need to sort of be like, well, what, what exactly were you doing differently? And how, how did that, how, what was the communication like? And, and sort of challenges, challenge ourselves in a safe, team-based, same goals, you know, exist environment to, to just tweak a little bit what we do. And sometimes, honestly, it won't be massive changes in, in what you're doing. It may be a little bit more just how you do it, how you're communicating about it and how you're involving the client and your, and your teams. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's switch gears for a moment. So partnerships are more important than ever. So how might a value-based care approach improve access to care for pets, but also help foster industry relationships? 
Yeah. So I think the access to care piece, I'll start, I'll start there because I think it is critically important. And if I, 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 I'm a veterinary ophthalmologist by training, so I was referral only. And I remember like too late in my career, I had this aha moment that like, wait, not everybody wants to be referred, even if they could technically afford it. So I, because it just is, again, it, it leaves out what, what is somebody, you know, what's their comfort level with, they, with their general practitioner and they, and they don't want to go someplace new with their pet. They don't want to meet a new person. They're comfortable with their team or philosophically, they, they don't want to go someplace and feel like, but I might get pressure to do something that I don't want to do for my pet just because I could theoretically do it. And so I think the access point is it helps people feel like no matter where you are, what your resources are, what your personal beliefs, your 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 you know socioeconomic background, cultural cultural you know um, beliefs, it doesn't matter. We're you're going to come in with your pet, or you're going to be on a video, or however it's going to be, and we're going to figure out what's important to you, what's realistic, and how do we make sure you have access to the best care that you can get that best fits for you and for your pet. And and again, that goes back to the earlier comment about the gold standard that it. it it was well-intended that when we all were trained on, you know, always offer the gold standard, but again, it's subjective. And it was, it was, you know, with good intentions, don't make any judgments on what somebody could afford, but, but you kind of made judgments on what they're supposed to do instead of like, nothing's that black and white. Again, it's all subjective. So I rant and rave on that one, but I think the access point is that it's, it's a comfort level that people will feel like I'm going to be heard. I'm going to be seen and I'm going to, I'm going to get help that, that fits me. For the industry partnerships, you know, we got to make sure we're solving the right problems. I think as we get better at the disease conditions and an understanding, you know, where if if you're going down a treatment pathway, where does where does um, the inconsistency show up? If you if you want to be able to provide as much as you can a, a consistent outcome, where are there gaps? And we might find then, you know, what we don't have the right kind of medication to treat this. People can't can't do you know x y or z or they can, or they're running we have complications in this area so so if you're spending huge r&d dollars you want to know well what problems do people need solved and because that's where you'll put your r&d dollars for industry partnerships and again it, i think that's the we make assumptions on on you know where science might lead us to great spots but if if we don't know from the clinical care, turning you know that into evidence-based medicine and figuring out where we actually have areas of need, um, then then you know we might just not be we might be bringing great things to market, whether it's you know pharmaceuticals, you know techniques, you know implants, etc., but not necessarily solving for the right problems. Right, I I, I think that's exactly it. Making sure we solve for the right problems is key. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So. As a leader and former business owner, um, what words of wisdom would you like to share with us? My gosh, you have an amazing track record. So tell us something. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, uh, well, so part of it, I suppose it's it's hard to say anything without being so cognizant of what's happening right now in our industry. You know, sometimes I feel like, oh gosh, we should have all seen this coming. Not a pandemic, but, but the pandemic um, really just heightening all the tensions of this is a really, really, really hard job. And, and, you know, now more than ever, people have pets and want good care. Now more than ever, people are connected digitally and, and, you know, they want it, they, they want different types of interactions. You know, now more than ever, our, our clinical teams are really letting us know like, Hey, this, this is a lot. It's been too much. And so we need a, we need a break. Um, So part of it is, that you just have to be, just hang in there. I mean, I have my moments of, of like, God, can I just like have a little taco stand someplace and just like 
get some, you know, get out of this, but it's, it, it, the words of wisdom are, I guess, that we, we have to just stay in the game, stay in there and, and, and get out of this, of like the same thinking that you've been in right there. We have to not just incrementally keep going and, and for some reason, hope it's going to get better. We have to be like, you know what, we got to be brave and try different things and, and, you know, and don't fall in the footsteps of human healthcare, pick the good stuff from human healthcare, you know, really, really push ourselves to, to think outside of the box and, and have our voices be heard, especially as a female. I mean, you know, it's not always so easy. So, you know, I honestly, as silly as it sounds, my biggest word of wisdom is hang in there. Yeah, no, it's not silly at all. I think it's excellent. Unfortunately, we're out of time. Oh, it's this fun. It's so this- nice to see you. Well, it was great to see you and thank you so much for coming on the show because it was a pleasure to have you and I thought you had some excellent advice for us and some very interesting perspectives. So thank you. Thank you. Much appreciated. (laughs) So this is the first episode of season eight of Pause and Reflect with Zoetis, but do not be disappointed. Episode two of season eight is coming up next, where we talk to a chief medical officer who has a very unique vantage point. And let's see how she does on her quiz. I don't know if she'll do it better than you. My gosh, Dr. Welser, you rocked it. So subscribe to the podcast on whatever platform you listen to, and you will be notified when it launches. I'm Dr. Kim Farina, and this has been Pause and Reflect with Zoetis.